Today is our second look at 2 Thessalonians, and we'll look at a really unique text that talks about a man called the Antichrist. Uh, our, our passage actually refers to him as the man of lawlessness or the lawless one, and it's really only the Apostle John that ever calls him the Antichrist, but that's kind of the, uh, the name that he's be- become more commonly and famously known by. Before we get into it, though, I want to give you a refresher on the chronology of the end times that we've been covering during 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So let's get it up there. Um, the chronology so far goes like this. We are right now in the church age, which also sometimes is called the age of grace. Anyone who dies right now is immediately uh, absent from the body, but present with Christ in heaven. So you're in heaven with Jesus in a non-physical form, okay? That's, that's how that is. But a day is coming which will come like a thief in the night, unexpected, where rapture will happen. That means all who have ever died that were believers will be raised to life and given new bodies, and all the living believers at that moment will be teleported out, is maybe the best way to put it, Uh, and they'll meet everyone else up in the air with Jesus. So all believers from all history will be given new bodies at that moment in the air, and then he will take them somewhere else. Uh, That's what he talks about in John 14, right? I go prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you so that where I am you may also be, right? Uh, That's going to be an unexpected time. Uh, Jesus said it'll be like a thief in the night. That's what he says in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. Paul said the same thing in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And after the rapture happens, after that moment where all believers are removed from the earth, is what inaugurates this whole seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out on the earth called tribulation. That's also sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel. Um, but this is the wrath of God, the justice of God being poured out on the earth, and, uh, and people will be saved during this time. There will still be people coming to faith during this time, but this is a moment where God is unleashing judgment on the earth and reclaiming the world uh, for, uh, for Jesus. In fact, there's a, a picture of Jesus uh, in Revelation 5. Uh, he's, he's breaking open a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And for those first four seals, that happens in the first half of the tribulation. For three and a half years, you have the first four seals, each one unleashing a different judgment. All, they seem to be kind of natural judgments. Uh, but at the halfway point, is where the Antichrist kind of comes into play. He sets up something called the abomination of desolation. Uh, he defiles the temple. He ends sacrifice. He persecutes Israel. Uh, and this, it, it, that's the act that he does in the middle of tribulation at the three and a half year point. And that starts the second half of the tribulation, which is sometimes referred to as the great tribulation because it's increased in severity. And sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. That's kind of the Old Testament uh, term for it. Now, during that time, 144,000 Jews will come to faith. You'll see that in Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8. And then they evangelize, and countless Gentiles are brought to to salvation and martyred. That happens in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. And uh, during that time, of uh, the second half of the tribulation is when the remaining three seals on that scroll are unleashed, the uh, last three judgments. The seventh one also unleashing seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet unleashing seven bulls. All of that is explained in our series through Revelation. I know this is a lot. 
Okay, and hopefully by the end of the sermon, some of this stuff will make a lot more sense. But I want to give it to you now just as a, as a roadmap. Okay? Uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation is when you actually have the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Right? He returns to the earth. All believers in their glorified bodies will be with him. Uh, his angels, the angels of his power will be with him. And there will be a final battle at Mount Megiddo, Armageddon. Uh, it's a final battle with the, the Antichrist and the demons and, and the nations that follow them. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be basically Antichrist, demons, and the nations versus the true Christ and the angels and the believers, the church. Okay, that's, that, that, that's the battle of Armageddon. That too will be unexpected like a thief uh, because even though it's seven years of, of tribulation, you should be able to mark when Jesus is going to return. Uh, the unbelievers who are left on the earth will be led astray by many false Christs, false prophets, and so they won't see the return of Jesus coming. Once Jesus is done destroying his enemies and subduing the earth, he sets up the millennial kingdom. And that's where Jesus is king in Israel. All the promises to Abraham, David, to the nation of Israel, they all are fulfilled there. The promised land finally belongs to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, and uh, during that time, Jesus imprisoned Satan for a thousand years, and uh, Israel is on top of the world. The other nations, the unbelieving nations, they are in submission to Israel, uh, and creation will be renewed during that time. This is all in Revelation 20, by the way. But creation is renewed during that time to more closely resemble its original design before sin entered the world. And you get a big explanation on that in Isaiah 65, specifically verses 17 to 25. This is a preview of the new heavens and the new earth. It's like this, this uh, moment where you can see that God is setting up the new heavens and the new earth. Survivors of the tribulation will live and procreate during that time, and there will still be mortal man, uh, sinful by nature. Human lifespan, though, will stretch for centuries, much like it did in Genesis. And uh, predatorial carnivorous animals will no longer be a danger. They'll be herbivorous, it seems. They'll be safe. Disease and genetic abnormality will be no more. All of that will happen during that thousand-year reign where Jesus is king. And then at the end of the thousand years, Jesus will release Satan. Satan will deceive the nations and try to, to mount this final rebellion, this final assault against the Lord. Uh, and uh, when that happens, it'll be very anticlimactic. The fire will come down from heaven and consume Satan and all his followers. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. We call that hell. After the, that final rebellion, there's a great white throne of judgment where Jesus sits on a throne and everyone who has ever lived is brought before him. This particularly uh, applies to unbelievers. Believers, uh, everyone who's, who's a, a Christian, their names are written in the book of life and so they all kind of get this free pass to go to heaven because God has already uh, reserved their place. But everyone else is judged for their deeds uh, and then they are sentenced to their appropriate punishments in hell. That then takes you to the eternal state where unbelievers stay in the lake of fire to be tormented forever. That's kind of the upgraded hell. And then believers are given a new heavens and a new earth, which just means a new universe, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, he creates a new heavens and a new earth. That's a new universe. They will dwell on the new earth, just like they originally dwelt on the original earth. Uh, and so will God. He will also dwell on the new earth with all believers. That's us. The physics of the new earth will be radically different than our current world. Don't know what that'll look like, but it'll be different. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sin, no more curse. And we'll be fine with him forever. 
Now, again, I hope this makes more sense by the end of the sermon. I know it's a lot. But where we're at today is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to focus on that activity of the Antichrist during the middle of tribulation, right at that halfway point of that seven-year period of God's wrath. We're going to take this in six movements if you're taking notes, okay? If you're taking notes, we've got six movements. The first one, who is the Antichrist? We're just going to talk about that for a sec. Second is to say that now is not the day of the Lord. We are not in tribulation. It is not the end times. Just want to make sure we, we lay that out or else you're all going to start gathering up supplies and wondering whether or not this is it and, you know, and it, it leads to some kooky living. So we want to make sure that we understand the message that First and Second Thessalonians is telling every believer, which is don't do that. You're not in the end times right now. And uh, how do you know? Well, that takes you to point three. Right before the day of the Lord, what happens? Right before the day of the Lord, that's point three. We're going to talk about what happens right before the day of the Lord, okay? Uh, point four is, how do we know the Antichrist is not here right now? Like, how do we know he's not alive and walking around and just kind of waiting for his time to, you know, have his moment in the sun? Uh, and then our fifth point will be, should we be scared should we be scared? I think that's a legitimate question. And then the last one will be, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? Okay, all right, those are our six points. Let's start with who is the Antichrist. And I wanna just start by talking about the term Antichrist. Antichrist means against Christ. Now, it, uh, you, we tend to think that that sounds like an equal and opposite, like you know, a, 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 a shadow negative Messiah or something like that. And in a sense, yes. Opposite, yes. Equal, not, not even close. Not even close, right? He's a mock Christ. He's a fake Christ. And so he is against Christ. Now, to know exactly who this guy is, uh, you should know his general description kind of goes like this. He is the most powerfully destructive and wicked human being to ever walk the earth. He is just a human being, but he is the most powerfully destructive and wicked human being to ever walk the earth. He's given power by Satan during the end times to rule the world, and he will be the culmination of all the false prophets, all the false teachers, and all the false religions that have come before him. He's the greatest of all who hate God, and he's the one in whom the whole unbelieving world will place its trust during that time of tribulation when the church is gone. Verse 3 calls him a man of lawlessness, and then the son of destruction, and then in verse 8, he's called the lawless one. He's got lots of different terms. The Apostle John likes the term antichrist. And you have to know about this guy. He's part of God's plan in, uh, in, in the Old Testament, even in Daniel chapters 7, 8, 9, and 11. He's called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in Zechariah 11, verses 16 and 17, he's called the worthless shepherd. He's a shepherd that kind of shepherds a bunch of people, and then he betrays them. He deserts the flock, and so he's a, a betrayer of some sort. Revelation 13, though, will give us the most vivid imagery that oftentimes people hold on to, which is to depict him as a beast, and he marks people who follow him with the mark of the beast, 
And he borrows that imagery directly from Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you Daniel chapter 7 first uh, so that we can hear about these four beasts, which are all uh, four different kingdoms and their respective leaders, okay? So Daniel chapter 7, verse 3, it says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea. Notice they come out of the sea. Hold on to that, okay? Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Verse 5 says, A second one like a bear... Verse 6 said, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And then you jump down to verse 7. It says, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It says, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So the, uh, the sum up on that, the real simplified version, if you don't want to go into our Daniel series, you have four kingdoms represented by four beasts. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and then something else that's unlike the others. It has features that are similar, but it's like this other thing. Now, these kingdoms represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the fourth one turns out to be Rome. Those were the four world empires that came uh, after Daniel's time. He, he prophesied that there would be four beasts that come conquering the the. Uh, the people of God. And that's exactly how it went. Babylon, Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. The Roman Empire would, would reign, and then it would collapse, it would die, and then it will someday return in the future, is what the, the, uh, the book of Daniel tells us, that it'll die and then it'll come back. It'll come back uh, before the return of the Messiah. So look at this fourth kingdom. The fourth beast shows up again in Revelation 13, where we get this idea of the beast and the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. You get Revelation 13 and watch this fourth beast return with resembling features of the first three kingdoms. So chapter 13, verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, let's stop there for a sec. It turns out that this beast is a kingdom, and it's Rome, and its manifest leader is the Antichrist. He is from Rome. You, uh, that's something to hold on to. Okay, The Antichrist comes from Rome. He is Roman. He's a religious political leader that comes from Rome. Do we have any religious political leaders in Rome today? Technically, yes. And it comes from the most counterfeit of the gospel religions. Catholicism. His name is the Pope. Will the Antichrist be a Pope? I don't know. But it's just, it's odd that, uh, that that's exactly where we have religious political leaders in Rome. He's the composite of all the great world empires, the Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, he's all of Israel's enemies combined. That's the Antichrist. And he has a mouth that will blaspheme, but he can only go for 42 months. 42 months, if you do the math, is three and a half years, because that's what's, that's what's gonna happen. He's gonna, uh, he's gonna reign for a time, and then at the halfway mark, between seven years, he's gonna do something and then for 42 months, for three and a half years, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, that's where he will have his most severe activity. Revelation 13 goes on to say that he rules the world. He's going to make war against God's people during that time. And the whole unbelieving world will follow him. 
That's the Antichrist. Now, the point that the, the Apostle Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians about is, now is not the day of the Lord. The, like, that time is not right now. It's not happening right now. No matter who's elected as president, don't start walking around saying, oh, that's the Antichrist. How would you know? How would you know, right? He says, now is not the day of the Lord, and that's not the way you should live. So look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, first two verses. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's ultimately what this is about, the second coming of Jesus, okay? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Right? Stop there for a second. The, the, the problem being addressed here is that the Thessalonians thought that they were in the day of the Lord. They thought they were in the end times. They thought they were in the tribulation, specifically the second half of tribulation. That's what the day of the Lord refers to. It's, it's the tribulation, usually emphasis on the second half and, and oftentimes uh, pointing right to the return of Jesus. Now, as, uh, as they saw this persecution coming on around, around the church at that time, that's when they were concluding like, oh, this must be it. All this persecution, that must be it. And Caesar must be the Antichrist because things are so difficult for us right now. There, there's a shortage of food and there are wars going on and there's persecution on God's people. That all sounds like tribulation. And so they go, this is the end times. Let's store up a bunch of supplies. And, you know, what happened? We, uh, we, we missed the, the rapture or something. And Paul had to go and correct all that in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. He says, rapture comes before the day of the Lord. Don't, don't freak out. You're, you are not of the darkness. You are not of the night. You are children of the day. You're children of light. The day of the Lord doesn't involve you. That's God's vengeance on unbelievers, etc. right? So how is it? If rapture comes first and then comes tribulation, you know, and day of the Lord being the, the latter half of that, if that all is supposed to go out in that way, how could they be confused about this? Paul has already written them the letter, 1 Thessalonians, which kind of clarifies all that stuff. So why are they confused? And it says in verse 2, that, or it, 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 it seems to indicate in verse 2 that someone has come in and confused them with some kind of a letter that seems to be from Paul or from any one of the other church leaders and stuff. Someone has come in and really thrown the Thessalonians into a chaotic mass of questions and confusion and fear, anxiety, and all this kind of stuff. And Paul is saying, what are you doing? The people of God are not to live like that. You should not be afraid of the end times. You should not think that, that God's going to destroy you just like he does unbelievers. Why would you think that way? That's the point of these two letters. So someone has come and, and lied to the Thessalonians and deceived them, and he's come to sort this out. Now, his reasoning basically goes like this. It's, you're not in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not right now for three reasons. First, rapture hasn't happened yet. You're going to be raptured first, right? You're not going to be there. So that's 1 Thessalonians 4. Right? And then he says, second, the day of the Lord isn't for you. It's for unbelievers. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. So those are the two arguments he's given already. And now he's going to give this third argument. He's like, you can't be in the day of the Lord. Before the day of the Lord, before, before that, that time of great tribulation and stuff, the Antichrist has to be revealed. In fact, before the whole tribulation, the first thing that happens is the Antichrist kind of comes out on the scene. So you, you, you can't possibly be in the end times unless you know the Antichrist is walking around. Verse 3, 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, unless the rebellion comes first and the, the Antichrist is revealed, the son of destruction. Right? That's why he, he, he deals with the Antichrist here. He's like, you can't possibly be in the day of the Lord. You, don't you remember? Before the day of the Lord, you've got to have this moment where the Antichrist, the, the, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the lawless one, where this guy comes out and, and does his rebellion, does his apostasia, his apostasy, which literally means uh, like the turning away from faith. So, now is not the day of the Lord. How could you possibly think it's the day of the Lord? I already taught you this. You know, it, it can't be that that's the day of the Lord because the Antichrist has not yet come out and done his rebellion. That's his point, right? Point number three. What happens then right before the day of the Lord? What's this whole rebellion thing? Look at uh, verse three again. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you? I told you these things? Paul says, there is no way that the day of the Lord is now. Don't you remember? The thing that comes before the day of the Lord is the rebellion. Now, he doesn't bother going, rapture comes first, the three and a half years of tribulation. He, he doesn't do that. He's, he's just like, don't, you know how this goes. I've told you this already. You have to wait for this, this antichrist thing to happen. If that doesn't happen, you, you absolutely should know you're not in the day of the Lord. Antichrist has to happen first. And specifically, his rebellion, his apostasia, his apostasy. Apostasy is the deliberate abandonment of a formerly professed religious position, right? It, when you go, I'm a Christian, and then someday you go, I'm not a Christian, you've apostatized, right? That's apostasy. That's where you, you deny the religious position that you, that you had. The Antichrist is uh, such a person that will do that. He will have a moment of apostasy, of great rebellion, uh, a moment where he does something that rebels against his religious profession. So that means that he will profess that he believed in God, believed in the Bible, believed in Jesus even, and then will deny it. So it would have to come from some religion that presents a counterfeit gospel. It would have to look a lot like faith in the Bible, but it'll replace the Bible with, with other things. Traditions, sacraments, Mary, Pope, writings from historians, Aquinas, Augustine, that will become the authority and the word of God will take this weird back seat, but everything will look like it believes in God. But the authority will come from something else, something, something in the world. This guy, this, the, the Antichrist, will come with that kind of an authority. He'll, he'll come and everyone will think that he is a godly man. And then he will apostatize. He'll turn away from all that. Now, Paul has, has warned them about this stuff, and that's the moment that's really going to reveal him. That's where there's going to be this undeniable moment of like, uh-oh, this, this guy is not what he said he was. He, we thought he was just a nice guy. We thought he was a godly person, but now he's revealed for who he really is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver, etc. So let's look at this, this uh, religious 
apostasy, this rebellion that he leads, right? He's, uh, he's turning away from what he previously was. The Antichrist rises to world power either by accepting all religions or uniting them under a single religion or something like that, even if it's under atheism, let's say. But he unites the whole world. This is right after rapture takes place, right? Rapture takes place. All believers are gone. All Christians are gone. And now this world leader has free reign to, to move about, this, or this guy has, has free reign to come to power and unite the world under his leadership, and everyone's going to listen to him because you've lost the voice uh, of his most fervent opponents, the people that want to keep godliness to be the salt and light of the earth. That's gone. So now you have a world in darkness and one guy to lead them all, and he puts them all together. Whatever religious position he takes, the whole world gets behind him, and at the midpoint of tribulation is when he apostatizes. Now, this is talked about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he, and we're talking about the Antichrist, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven. It says one week, but really it's one, uh, one and then it's the number seven, which means a seven-year period. And for half of the, the seven, half of the seven-year period, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, this is talking about the end times. So it's going to be the seven-year period. And halfway through it, he's going to put an end to sacrifices and offerings. So the, the, uh, the Jewish religion will then be persecuted. Right then and there. Uh, a temple will be rebuilt. They've been operating and stuff because he made a strong covenant, a peace treaty with Israel. Israel has a restored basis of faith. They're doing their sacrifices and things. And he, that's a seven-year covenant, a seven-year treaty. And in the middle of it is when he breaks it. That's his rebellion, his apostasy. And he starts, uh, he starts profaning the temple. And he sets up some kind of an altar or a monument and, it's, it's, uh, and this is his abomination of desolation, okay? Uh, chapter 11, verse 31 of Daniel. It says, uh, forces from him, the Antichrist, shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So that's the Antichrist. He's going to uh, persecute Israel for 1,290 days. That's three and a half years, plus like an, this extra month of some other activity that goes on. Verse 4, and you can get into our Daniel series. On, on, there are numbers that come up. 1,260, that's three and a half years. 1,290, and then 1,335. So anyway, if you want to get into that. Verse 4, uh, he exalts himself over all gods and religions. Uh, verse 4 of uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, sorry. It, it, it says that he exalts himself over all other gods and all other religions. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he calls himself God. He calls himself God. Anyone who falsely claims to be God is committing the most extreme and egregious form of blasphemy. Right? If, if Jesus does it, it's okay, because it's true. Jesus is God. But if anyone else claims to be God, that is the most severe, most extreme, most egregious form of blasphemy, which is why the Jews were outraged when Jesus claimed to be God. They didn't believe him. So they saw that as the greatest form of blasphemy. Look at John chapter 10, verse 33, when it happens, it says, uh, the Jews answered him, it's not good for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
right? That's why they're going to they're gonna stone him. Uh, they're not like, you know, it's not anything else you did. It's because you called yourself God. So the Antichrist is going to go into the temple. He's going to claim the place that belongs to God, that belongs to Jesus. And then he's going to call himself God, and he's going to claim to be deity. This is halfway during tribulation. That's when he apostatizes and calls the whole world to worship him. And that is going to mess up the nation of Israel. That will, will bring the, the most terrifying persecution that's ever been unleashed on the covenant people of Israel. The most severe persecution, the likes of which has never been seen. Jesus talks about it in chapter 24, verse 15 of Matthew. Matthew 24, 15, it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, if you ever see that monument there, and he's talking to a bunch of Jews in Israel who don't even believe in him. He's like, if you ever to see that, standing in the holy place, meaning in the temple, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea, which is southern Israel, in that area of the temple, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Verse 21, for then there will be, a, there will be great tribulation. The, apost uh, the apostasy, the rebellion in the halfway point, inaugurates the second half. That's the great tribulation, right? For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. There will be this awesome power of fury and violence unleashed against the people of Israel, now, before the Antichrist gets to the point where the whole world embraces him, he has to be tolerant of religion. He has to be building up his political religious career before tribulation. He's, he's a rising leader. And once the church is raptured out, he can take his position of power without, without much opposition. He picks the temple in Jerusalem for his particular act, probably because it's the symbol of the presence of the true God, is it not? I mean... Israel is apostate, Judaism has failed, God has removed himself and, and awaits Israel's future salvation, but Jerusalem still belongs to God. God's presence is symbolized in the temple in Jerusalem, on the Holy Mount. Whether there's a temple or a mosque or anything else, that Holy Mount, that's, that's the, the, uh, the center of conflict in the Middle East. That mountain, right? Jerusalem, the, the specific mountain it's on, Mount Moriah. The temple there or the mosque there or whatever, that's where, that's where God's supposed to be. And so when the Antichrist comes to power, he seems to have somehow diffused the conflict in that area, done something to bring the world unto a single order under him, and then he's going to walk into that place, and that's where he does his whole thing. That's where he orchestrates his ultimate blasphemy and sets up the abomination of desolation. That first half of tribulation, he's just a world leader while all these other judgments are being unleashed on the earth and stuff. But Daniel says he signs that treaty with Israel. He brings peace to the Middle East, becomes protector of Israel, maybe. It seems like the, he has a great relationship with the Jews. The Jews think that he might be the Messiah. That's very, very likely because he signs a treaty with them, lets them restore their worship. He's in charge of the world, and that's what they're waiting for, isn't it? And so they go, he's the Messiah, that, this is him. And then, three and a half years into that treaty, he breaks it. He rebels, he apostatizes. And that's when Israel goes, 
it is revealed that this guy is not the Messiah. He is a mock Christ, a fake Christ, an antichrist. Then the Jews will know. And then they'll go, well, then who is the Messiah? And that's when 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, they'll go, wait a minute. We missed him. He was here. His name is Jesus. Now this guy, this uh, Antichrist, he, he, he seems to uh, be a guy that loves talking about God, about knowing God. He seems, this, this guy that, that woos the world, seduces the world with his religious position. And he controls the world for three and a half years. And then when he opposes every religion, he sets himself to be God. Now everyone has to worship him or else suffer and die. And that's what happens to inaugurate the second half of tribulation. That's the day of the Lord. That has to happen right before. His apostasy, his rebellion has to happen right before the day of the Lord takes place. Now, how do we know that the Antichrist is not here right now? Right? How, do we, how do we know he doesn't walk among us? How do we know he's not one of you? How do we know? Well, that's a valid question. How do we know our president or some other leader, some governor or something like that, you know, someone in a different country? How do we know some other political leader somewhere isn't the coming Antichrist? And technically, we can't know at this point. We don't know if the president is or isn't right now, so why, why speculate on that? We'd have to wait and see what he does. And we can sit here and guess if someone's the Antichrist as much as we want. How would we be certain? We can't. I'd venture to say Satan isn't even certain who the Antichrist is. I don't think Satan even knows, okay? And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this out for you on why I think that. Now, if you remember, when Jesus was talking in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, he says, not even I know when I'm going to come back to the world. Not even the Son of Man knows the hour of his return. Jesus said that, right? So if Jesus doesn't know, then Satan doesn't know. Jesus is God. Satan is not. Right? So if no one knows, Satan doesn't even know when Jesus is, is going to return. And when Jesus is, like, is going to come like a thief in the night, it's going to surprise everyone. Even Satan's going to be surprised. He doesn't have information that Jesus doesn't. He doesn't know things that Jesus doesn't know. So it seems as though if you, if you kind of watch what's being said about the Antichrist in, uh, in the letters by the Apostle John, Satan always seems to have an Antichrist at the ready. He's always got someone prepared to take over the world. He's always got someone prepared to, to, uh, to inflict persecution on God's people. He's always got someone like that, right? He can always raise up one of the existing world leaders and put him in charge of the global political climate. That's not going to be hard if you get rid of the church. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. What's, what an interesting thought. That's interesting to hear that many antichrists, many mock Christs, many fake Christs have come, and Satan has had numerous candidates, numerous guys at the ready. And yet we're still waiting for a specific antichrist, the one that will actually fulfill everything that God foretold about him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Right? The biggest liar of history will be the Antichrist who convinces the world 
that, uh, that Jesus and, and the Father, they're not God. He's going to say, I'm God. They aren't. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus uh, is not from God. The spirit, uh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, that means that the spirit and the attitude of the Antichrist is already operating now, but is also coming in the future, right? Uh, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There's always someone at the ready. And someone in the future will be the fulfillment of that. At some point, it'll come. In 2 John 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Okay, watch this. These are deceivers. They are deceivers uh, out in the world who, uh, who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That means... They're not just people of a different religion, like Buddhist, right? These are people who deceive. So they go, oh, yeah, yeah, the Bible, the Bible, yeah, yeah, and God is real and all that stuff. But Jesus, that whole thing about the second coming, that's not real. That's a deceiver who cloaks himself as a, as a, a person of faith, as an angel of light even, you know, who disguises himself as good news and then goes around saying that whole thing about the second coming, that's not real. Jesus Christ is not coming back in the flesh. And it says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That doesn't mean that everyone who, con uh, who doesn't confess Jesus will come back in the flesh is an antichrist. Don't read it wrong. It means lots of deceivers pretended to be Christian. Lots of deceivers pretended to be godly. Lots of deceivers pretended to know the Bible. Lots of deceivers then went out and denied that Jesus will return to the flesh. The antichrist is going to be one of those guys. He's going to be such a one. He'll do that. He'll pretend to be religious, and then he, he will also deny the return of Jesus in flesh. Lots of cults do that, by the way, you'll notice. They, you know, they say, Jesus isn't really coming back. Our leader is Jesus coming back in flesh and stuff. And they always kind of like wrap it up with a new spin, and you know, they, they get creative. These are antichrists, but they are not the antichrist. A lot of little mock Christs here and there. But there is a coming Antichrist. The Apostle Paul says the true Antichrist won't be revealed until a certain time. Something will happen, and then we'll know. So, how do we know the Antichrist is not here now? He kind of tells us in verses 6 and 7 of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, And you know what is restraining him now. He is being restrained right now. He can't do his thing right now. So we don't even know who he is because he's restrained. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Something's restraining him. He can't be revealed. Satan has everyone at the, someone at the ready at all times, but they can't act. They can't do their thing because something's restraining him. And at the right time, It'll be, uh, he'll be revealed. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it, restrains lawlessness, will do so until he's out of the way. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, so uh, I know that's, that's confusing. The, the arrival of Antichrist is being restrained right now. 
By what? Well, some people say, oh, it's, it's restrained uh, until the gospel reaches the end, ends of the globe, you know, like it's got to cover the world and stuff. But there's no verse that says that. Some people say, oh, the, the Antichrist is, is being restrained until the influence of the church covers the world. That's just, there's no verse that says that. You know, some say, oh, an angel has to inaugurate this or something. There's no text that says that, right? What it talks about here is there's a restrainer. There, what is restraining him now, and in terms of uh, the language, whether masculine or feminine, in Greek, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter, which is neither masculine nor feminine. This restrainer is talked about in both the neuter and the masculine. What is restraining him now, that's in the neuter. And then it says, he who now restrains it, that's in the masculine, that he, right? Okay, so who is this restrainer? What is this restrainer? The only thing that's neuter and masculine in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. The word spirit in Greek, pneuma, is neuter. And the, the Holy Spirit, when referred to by pronoun, is always he, masculine. He is masculine. Spirit is neuter. He is neuter and he's masculine. So the Holy Spirit is our best guess at what's even being talked about here. And when you, when you sit here and actually like do, do some of the, the thinking through it, it, it comes down to this. If the Holy Spirit is the restrainer, how is it that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way? Because that's weird. The Holy Spirit's restraining the, the work of the Antichrist and the, and the work of lawlessness in the world. But then at some point, the restrainer's removed? Well, how does that happen? Well, where is the Holy Spirit right now? He indwells every believer, every Christian. Is there ever a time in which the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, would be removed in such a way where all believers would then have to be removed from the earth. That would be what event? Rapture. Once you have rapture, all believers are gone. And so the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is gone. So the one who is restraining lawlessness is gone. He's out of the way. And so now the lawless one will be revealed. If you have more questions on the Holy Spirit and him being the restrainer, you can go to our, our series on the Holy Spirit. I know I'm plugging a whole lot of series things, you know. I might as well sign my own autograph book. I get it. But it's because there's a lot to say on this stuff. And if you need resources, they're out there, okay? The Holy Spirit operates on the earth through every believer. If you remove the Holy Spirit from the earth, you'd have to do that by removing all the believers. And that's exactly what rapture is. When rapture happens, all believers are removed. The Holy Spirit's out of the way. The Antichrist can take over. No one can stop him. He deceives the world, uh, and everyone will follow suit. No one can speak truth. The source of truth is gone. The, the, all the believers who are evangelizing the world, they're gone. So the Antichrist can woo the nations and take over and make peace with Israel and settle the hostility in the Middle East and be seen as the world's savior, as the Messiah. And then he'll walk into the temple, call himself God, and unleash horror on anyone who defies him. So then, should we be scared? Should we be scared? The answer to that is no, then yes, then no. Should we be scared? No, then yes, then no. Okay. Uh, first is no, because we won't be here. What event will take place to remove us? Rapture 
right? So no, we shouldn't be scared. But then yes, we should be scared because when the Antichrist comes, he's going to persecute a lot of people. He's going to murder a lot of people. That should disturb us. So yes, we should be scared. But then should we be scared? No. Ultimately, because he will lose. He will be destroyed, right? That's, that's so important. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Notice how instantly the Antichrist is deposed. Jesus kills him with the breath of his mouth. Just from him speaking, kills the Antichrist. And that happens at the appearance of his coming. So he shows up, and there's not really like this choreographed fight scene that you would see in a superhero movie. No special effects or anything. Jesus speaks, and his enemy is destroyed instantly at the appearance of his coming. There is no tension there. There's just absolute omnipotent power that destroys his enemy. It's a little anticlimactic, I guess. It's not much of a fight, but it should breed in us a certain confidence in the almighty power of Jesus, who has the power to destroy anything that's been created. The Antichrist is just a man. He can be destroyed. You have no need to be scared if you love the truth. Verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. See, the Antichrist will be very convincing. He'll come with power, with signs, with wonders, and they're all granted to him by Satan. So he could do a lot of stuff that looks like miracles. That's probably how he'll, uh, he'll seduce Israel, get them on his side. That's how, that's how he'll convince the whole world. Power, signs, wonders. These are the same things that are used to describe the works of Jesus and the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Power, signs, wonders. Right? So this guy comes with false Miracle power. And they're not fake miracles. They're real miracles and stuff. He is in some way breaking the laws of nature because he has the power of Satan kind of enabling him to do stuff. So they're not fake. What makes them false signs, though? It's the fact that the signs point to something that's not true. The signs are to make everyone believe he is God. But that's not true. That's a false sign. People think Antichrist is Savior. That is not true. He is a fake Savior, a fake Christ, a mock Christ. It'd be hard to ignore. If you're part of the unbelieving world and you see this guy going around doing all that kind of stuff, you'd believe him. But if you hear the gospel and you love the truth and you're saved, and especially if you know your eschatology, you would recognize the counterfeit. The people who fall for his deception are those that refuse to love the truth. That's what it says. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's not that they don't understand the truth. It's not that. It's not that they heard the gospel and went, what? That's too complicated. I don't get it. It's not that. It's they refused to. What is the gospel? The gospel is everybody's uh, sinful by nature. Everyone's a sinner. 
And everyone needs to, to pay a divine penalty on that. But Jesus came and paid it for you. And so if you repent of your sins and embrace him and his way of living, his instruction for you, his design for you, then you're saved. You are forgiven. You don't have to earn it or anything. You just have to repent of your sinfulness and then embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's it. It's a free offer. That's all you got to do. That's the gospel. So it's not that people don't understand that. It's that they refuse to love the truth, right? They hear it and they go, forget it. Not interested. So we don't have to be wondering like, oh no, will people be deceived in such a way that like, oh, they, they, if only someone explained it to them, they would get it. No, it's not that. They get it, but they refuse to believe it. They would rather have their sin and they would rather have a, a savior that allows them to indulge in their fleshly desires. They hear the gospel, they reject it, they look for something else to follow, something else to believe, something else to trust. And whatever that something else is, it will be a false gospel, a false savior. But those who hear the gospel, the truth, they will, it's easy to understand. It's not hard to understand. Those who hear the truth of the gospel and love it, live by it, they don't have to be afraid of being deceived. On the flip side, those who do fall for, uh, for the Antichrist and, and his deception, it's because they choose to, right? They refuse to, to love the truth. They, they choose a certain way. God does not predestine people to unbelief. James 1.13, 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 2.4. He does not predestine people to unbelief. He doesn't double predestine. He doesn't predestine some to save and some to, uh, to unbelief. No, that's not how his election works. When, when people refuse to love the truth, God can let them be deceived more. I mean, they already don't believe, so he could just be like, all right, well then, have at it. Believe whatever you want. He can give them over to their unbelief and allow them to be even more deceived. That's fine. But he doesn't predestine people to unbelief. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, God sends them, the ones who refuse to love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They already do. They refuse to love the truth. So he just lets them go further and further into it. Verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth that had pleasure in unrighteousness. Right? The people that refuse to, to love the truth... God gives them over to their already godless thinking. And the delusion's going to come in the form of the Antichrist. He'll fulfill what they want, what they're looking for. He'll say, you know, marry whomever or whatever you want. Identify as whatever you choose. The design of God doesn't matter for you. Uh, live by your passion. There's no such thing as purity. Indulge. Don't restrain yourselves. He'll say all of that. And people will be given over to that so that their godlessness their sinfulness will be even more pronounced and obvious and undeniable. And that'll work on people who refuse to obey the gospel. It will not work on those who love the Lord Jesus. Okay, then, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with the Thessalonians? Chapter 2, verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul says, but we, and he's talking about uh, himself and Silas and Timothy, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Thessalonians, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel 
so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Well, here's how salvation works. You were loved by God, chosen by God, elected by God, and you are being made holy. That is, you are being sanctified. Right? And that happens by the Spirit of God and your belief in the truth. There is, there is activity is happening on both sides, and you can see it on either side. Paul doesn't say Christians need to be scared of the Antichrist. Paul doesn't say Christians need to be scared of tribulation. Paul doesn't say Christians need to be scared of the day of the Lord. He says the opposite of all of that throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He says it will be raptured. God's wrath is not for us. We are saved. The Antichrist isn't even revealed yet. All that kind of stuff. But something to to note, because we're at the end of the chapter. We've talked a lot about the Antichrist. Uh, I want to talk about Jesus for a moment. I feel like that's why we come here. When the Antichrist rebels, I told you 144,000 Jews come to faith, Revelation chapter 7, and they evangelize and a multitude of Gentiles get saved during tribulation. Let me show you that. I don't want to just leave you with a whole bunch of passages on Antichrist. I want, to, I want to show you how Jesus just breaks this guy's power, okay? So let's start with Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. That's, those are Gentiles because that means not Jewish, right? So from every nation, a countless number from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is a countless number of Gentile believers, right after 144,000 Jews uh, uh, come to faith and witness to the world, there's a countless number of Gentiles that now resound in praise, but if you notice where they're at, the Apostle John is looking into heaven. He's giving, being given a vision of heaven, and they're all standing before the Lamb in heaven. They're all standing there. Jesus hasn't yet returned. The second coming hasn't happened yet. That'll happen in chapter 16 through 19. 17 through 19, excuse me. Uh, and so they're just there. They're up in heaven during this tribulation time. And, uh, and then all of heaven explodes with angels in verse 12 saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Right? The angels who, uh, who rejoice at one sinner who repents... They look at countless multitudes of Gentiles from every nation, from every tribe, every tongue. They see all these people now in heaven. That tells you a few things. First, how many people got saved? You can't count them, but also, why are they in heaven? Because they got killed. They got martyred by the ruthless, violent, bloodthirsty, horrific holocaust that's unleashed by the power of the Antichrist. Chapter 7, verse 13 of Revelation. Then one of the elders in heaven addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, because I guess he did know. He says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Countless Gentiles, even during the period of great wrath from God on the earth, and 
great destruction and violence from the Antichrist, they'll come to faith. When they come to faith, they'll probably be killed, maybe almost immediately. But just to be thorough, let me then show you the return of Jesus as he disposes of the Antichrist, as he disposes of the beast. That's the language used in Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's angels, and that's us. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus unlike we've ever seen him before. This is not the, the meek and mild Jesus, the gentle lamb. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come back to reclaim what's his to tear it out of the hand who is a false Christ, a mock Christ. He comes and he's called the word of God because in the beginning he was there. He was with God, he is God. And so he's called the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And we're with him and he'll strike down the nations from, uh, from his mouth. A sharp sword comes from his mouth. So it seems as though he speaks and instantly his enemy is destroyed. Here's how it happens. Verse 19 of chapter 19 of Revelation. I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, everyone who followed them, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is how Jesus destroys the reign of the Antichrist. As I said, it's anticlimactic. Antichrist never stood a chance. What we should always keep in mind is people think Antichrist is equal and opposite Christ. I say again, he's opposite. He is not equal. He's powered by Satan. Satan is not equal and opposite God. He is opposite. He's not equal. Satan is just a disgraced angel. Antichrist is just a wicked man. But Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus alone is holy, holy, holy. Jesus alone is worthy and righteous. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to him forever and ever. Jesus alone is faithful and true. The Antichrist is the ultimate deceiver. 
Jesus is the word of God. Antichrist is the ruler of nations. Jesus is the king of kings. The Antichrist will curse the world with terror. Jesus will cleanse the world, make a brand new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, where sin and curse has no power. The Antichrist in Revelation 6 is revealed as a rider holding a bow sitting on a white horse. He's imitating Jesus, the rider on the white horse, who has a sword come out of his mouth. The Antichrist will deny the return of Jesus. And yet Jesus will return. The Antichrist gets thrown alive into a lake of fire. Jesus will live forever in glory with us, his people. At the false signs and wonders of Antichrist, the nations will follow. But simply at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Yes, the mock Christ is coming. But you have no need to fear. You will be with the true Christ and you will be with him forever. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We stand in awe. So many people think that they could come and fix the world, fix the nation, fix everything. And yet the only one who could do it is Jesus. So many people think that their, their opinion on their action plan on what to do with national policy, with the environment, with ethics, morality, philosophy, will somehow make everything right. But only you can do that. Oh, how we look forward to the day of your return. We don't dread it. We're not scared because we don't refuse to love the truth of the gospel. We fall on our knees and we worship you. We are blown away by your magnificent grace, by your unending forgiveness to those who repent and freely receive the gospel truth, the message of salvation. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the invitation to be part of your family. And how we wait to sing with the countless numbers of people who are saved during tribulation. How we wait to sing and watch the world tremble by the power of Jesus. How we long for that day that your enemies would be subdued, but those who would worship you would be reclaimed redeemed, restored, and given your glory, credited your righteousness, and allowed to reign with you in your kingdom, and then to live with you forever and ever. Oh, how we long for that day. Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are Savior. We trust in you. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.